So if you have your Bibles with you, we're looking at John chapter 19, verse 1 to 16. And if it is your first time in church, and this is kind of unfamiliar to you, um, we believe there's, there's, there's power in this book, not necessarily because of the pages, but because God speaks through this particular uh, word. It's a revelation that we have of Jesus, who we believe was the Son of God here on earth for us. We believe it's a love letter to us in that sense. So I'm not standing up to give some kind of like nice speech the midway through the, the service. What we're hoping here is that God will speak to every person in this room. That even if it is your first time in church, and you maybe think the Christian faith is the most ridiculous thing in the entire world, at times you'd have reason to completely believe that. But that we believe that there is something in this, and that God is present and speaking through this particular book. So John chapter 19, verse 1 to 16. And that's page 1087 in your pew Bibles. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And he slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you, so you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to set you free or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed you over is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Should I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, if you are maybe Christian this morning or have heard that story before, they can be all too familiar words, right? We know the story, we've heard it, we've seen it a million times. But I want you today, um, in this message, just for this brief time we have together, to maybe try and imagine what that must have been like for Jesus. That experience of rejection. Try and put yourself in his shoes to stand before that crowd, to receive those words. Because this, um, this morning we're continuing a series entitled uh, in Easter Encounters, and we're exploring different stories throughout the Easter story and looking at different characters within that story, within those stories, and how those characters um, have acted in reference to Jesus and, and the things they tell us about Jesus, who he is and what he's come to accomplish. And today we're looking at this crowd and the rejection that Jesus receives from this particular crowd. 
And actually, on the theme of, of rejection, um, I'm coming here hurting a little bit from some rejection that happened on Friday uh, for me. Why are people laughing instantly? <laughs> I'm opening my heart. And uh, on, on Friday, we had this, this quiz with Fuse, which is the 18s to 30s group. And, and we met, and, and during it, I can't remember exactly what happened, but you know I'm quite inclined to excitement. And I ran up to a circle of, of my friends and was really excited in the moment. I genuinely can't remember what it was. But I said, oh, mate, it's so good, isn't it? I went for a fist bump. It was at this point, midway through the fist bump, I realized one thing. I am far too old to be doing fist bumps. I turned 28 this Thursday, and I instantly regretted the fist bump. But you know that position where you're midway through it, and you have to commit to it. So I had to commit to a fist bump I didn't want to do in the first place. And once you have fist bumped said friend, everyone in the circle was like, oh, yeah, Ross, fist bump too. They're all, no, I don't even want to be fist bumping this person. So I had to go around the circle, fist bumping everyone, feeling my age hit me every single time our fist connects. And then I get to Zoe, who looks at me and literally goes, no. <laughs> Instant rejected. And if you've been rejected from a fist bump or maybe a high five, anyone ever been rejected from a high five before? That moment in absolute enthusiasm, something's happened. You put your hand in the air and they reject you. This is my personal favorite. Side screens. That video really splits people. There's some people that find it very funny, and some people, like the most of you here, go, oh, the poor guy. He was there for like 20 seconds and no one high-fived him. He even says, you can't hear it, but he actually says high-five at one point. Wow. <laughs> that didn't work as well as I thought it would. <laughs> so beyond the jokes, let's, let's think a bit more seriously um, about this particular theme of, of, of rejection. Because it can be so emotionally damaging, can't it? It can have real um, implications from the way we act I- I- in the future. Maybe uh, rejection from family members, favoring uh, one child over the other. Rejection from friends, a friendship group you have. Maybe it's rejection even from things that we sometimes laugh at in movies, you know, like sports teams, where, where you're the last person to be picked in, in a team. But that can have such implications later on in life, right? That moment of rejection where you felt you weren't good enough, and therefore that affects your identity later. Or rejection from jobs. You've been going down a particular career path, you've been working for this particular field for so long, and then getting rejected at the last moment, rejected after an interview. You're not good enough. You're not part of our group, mate. You're not the kind of person we hang out with. Go away. It can be so emotionally damaging. I was chatting to Fiona earlier, who um, heads up the Vulnerable Adults Ministry here at Mutley, but she's also a trained counsellor. And we were talking about um, rejection and, and the implications of this. And she was saying how so many, so many people that come to her have had rejection maybe in younger years or at some time in their life. And the implications that have later can be so bad sometimes. She says she can maybe be late for a meeting and, and that feeling of rejection can be tangibly felt by the person that she's meeting because they feel, well, you're late for me. That means you, you don't want me. You don't, you don't accept me. Or, or looking at a clock in a meeting and feeling rejected by that person because they've checked the time and, and you really, their time isn't important enough. You know, these, these small acts of rejection can have huge implications. So, and I'm looking around thinking, I know many of your stories, so I know you, you've had an experience of rejection, but if I don't know your story, I'm sure you have. Every one of us at some point. I want you to kind of take that and, 
And imagine then how Jesus must have felt standing before the crowd, because that would be a small, potentially, amount of rejection in comparison to what this man has experienced, right? And I think often when we look at Jesus and we look at this particular story of the cross, that the first thing we imagine are the phys- is the physical pain he went through, the lacerations on his back, the blood, um, the nails in his wrists, that kind of pain. The physical pain must have been unbelievable, but I want you to imagine the emotional pain. You know those moments when, um, when you're hurting so much inside that it almost f- feels physical, like you're actually hurting physically? Imagine something like that in, in, in the moment, categorically rejected by the Jews, the Romans, and everyone standing before him. So I want you to picture the scene. I want you to imagine Jesus is, is standing right here, just, in, just behind the, um, the stand. I want you to imagine you're looking at Jesus' face. His head is bowed. His cheeks are all bruised and swollen. There's cuts across his face and there's spit dribbling down his left cheek. His head is bowed because he's so ashamed from how he's been treated, mocked and held as a king, humiliated before everyone. Who even is this guy? On his head, he has a a crown of thorns. The palm they would have used to create and forge this crown of thorns, um, the thorns could be up to 12 inches long. So you notice that his hair is matted and messy. It's matted because the blood has begun to dry and mess his hair. You see trickles of blood drip across his face from the, the punches that the thorns have made in his scalp. You go down his body and you see a purple robe upon his shoulders. Not the purple robe of royalty and finery meant to hail this particular man, but a robe meant to mock him. It's messy, it's, it's disgusting, and it mocks him more than, says, more than says anything else. And then you're drawn to his skin. You're drawn to his skin because you see the lacerations coming around his side. You see the bits of skin literally hanging off at parts. There's not a part of his body which doesn't seem to be bleeding or scarred or cut in some way. The Romans had three forms of flogging. And they believed that the, the one that was given to Jesus in this moment by Pilate was called um, verba ratio. It's a Latin word, I can't pronounce it. Um, and Jay Blinzer says this about this particular form of flogging. He says, the victim was stripped, bound to a post or pillar, and beaten by a number of torturers until the latter grew tired, and the flesh of the victim hung in bleeding shreds. In the providences such as Judea, this was the task of soldiers. In the case of slaves or of criminals such as Jesus, scourges or whips were used. The leather tongs often fitted with a spike or several pieces of bone and led and joined to form a chain. It's not surprising that prisoners not infrequently collapsed and died under this procedure. So Jesus stands there, humiliated, beaten physically, rejected. And what did he do to deserve this? What was his crime? What could possibly push people to cause this kind of horrific punishment for someone he loved? That's what blows my mind. That was his crime. Those who the rest of society considered um, not worthy of of God, those who were um, poor, who were weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized, he spent time with them, the outcasts of society, those who had been rejected by the state, by the elite echelons of society, he spent time with. He gave them dignity when he had never had dignity before. He was a voice for the voiceless. He lifted up their heads for the first time and said, you know what? You may have been told that God does not welcome or love you, but that is not true. 
In fact, you come to God through me. He talked about this personal relationship with God, which hadn't been heard before. Not just some distant God sitting up in the heavens, judging everyone with a great beard and grandfather-like smile slash angry, depending on how he feels. But a God of love, a God who wants you in, in, in relationship. And he spoke of this kingdom of God in which the world will be different, in which hope would be something that people would strive for, that you could truly follow this Jesus and live a life of fulfillment. That is why he's been brought before a crowd, beaten, humiliated, and rejected. So Pilate brings him before the crowd. He places him there in, in, in all of this indignity. And he says, look, I'm bringing him to show you that I find no cause to have this man killed. Here is the man. The Jews instantly respond with, crucify him, crucify him. I'm not going to crucify him. I find no cause for him to be killed. To which the Jews raise their first accusation. They say that according to our law, he has committed blasphemy by claiming that he is the son of God. And their first accusation is this theological one. They're claiming to, to their law, right? Theology is the study of God. That's what I mean by that. They're, they're claiming that, that, that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, but also other people's perception of him is that he is the Son of God. And according to their Old Testament law, no human being can claim that kind of status. Therefore, according to Leviticus, deserves death. But Pilate, who actually, do you know what? In this story, he comes across as quite a good guy, right? He comes across almost the good one trying to free Jesus. This guy was not good. Like, he had done horrific things to people. And yet, in this moment, he comes across as good because actually, he's not going to listen to that argument. I mean, that's the Jewish law. He's not particularly a fan of Jewish people in the first place. So he takes Jesus back into his quarters. He questions him for a period of time and then brings him back out to the crowd and starts again to petition for his freedom, to which they reply, if you release him, you are no friend of the emperor. Anyone who places themselves as a king sets themselves up against Caesar. Suddenly that's kind of tweaked Pilate's interest. No longer is it a theological accusation. Now it's a political one. This is where his job role is at stake. This is where his potential life is at stake. Because if he releases Jesus, he's essentially affirming the fact that Jesus is some kind of king or should go free. That's at least what the Jews would say. As a consequence, Jesus is setting himself up against the emperor. Therefore, he's seen to be affirming this particular act. He would lose his job or potentially be killed for treason, something of the sort. So Pilate lets Jesus go. But that moment, right, and I've been reflecting on this this week, that moment of utter rejection and, and humiliation. And what significance does this have for us today? Why am I saying this? Just to make you feel sad at a man that died over 2,000 years ago? No, because Jesus' rejection means that we are accepted. Jesus was utterly rejected so we could be accepted. You know, every religion... <laughs> in the world. We disagree seemingly on many different things, but the one thing we all agree on is that there is something innately wrong with humanity. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Switch on the news, you see stories, you see things happen, you go, that is just not the way things are meant to be. That's evil. That's wrong. How do we make that decision? There's something about us that says there is a better way. This is not the way things are meant to be. We all agree on that. And as Christians, our conclusion is that this thing that is wrong with us is sin. I know when you say that word, you can feel the atmosphere in a room change because there's so many connotations that have negatively been placed upon that particular word. Well, I mean, it is a negative word, but from history. 
But actually what we're talking about when we're talking about sin is like a, a cancer that infects everyone and affects this world as, as, as we know it. Everything waits in eager expectation for the coming of Jesus to return. Everything is infected by this particular sin. So when we look at Jesus, we look at his rejection. What we're saying is that his rejection meant our acceptance. Why? Because he went to the cross, the ultimate rejection, in order to heal us of this particular cancer. Does that make any kind of sense? And therefore, we could have a relationship with God. That is why his rejection equals our acceptance. And I don't know about you, but in a world in which, in which we're so often rejected in many different ways, by friends, jobs, sports teams, whatever it may be, to know that there is a God who accepts us entirely as we are. Let me just make that, that clear for you. Entirely as you are. Doesn't matter what your background is, what you come here, the baggage you bring here this morning, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, history of messiness, whatever it may be, you are accepted by the living God that we worship. And that doesn't mean that we don't believe in life transformation. Those are things that when you come into relationship with God, you will change. Why? Because there was a guy who described meeting Jesus as it's like being hit by a freight train. You can't help but be changed. That's pretty true, right? You come into the presence of the living God, you will be changed. But your acceptance is unqualified. There's nothing you can do to merit it. You can't make yourself look better, wear a smart suit, do your hair well. I know you know this, but it's good to reaffirm these truths, right? Even ginger people are accepted in the kingdom of God. How cool is that? That's hope. That's hope for the world. Ed Sheeran's not the only representative. So how do we respond? The response is simple. I th- you can say complicated things as preachers. You can go on. You can, I'm going to shut up in a second. Uh, here's the response. Walk into his arms. I don't know if, um, if you come here this morning and this is your first experience of church. And actually, do you know what is so horrifically sad is that sometimes the last place people who don't have a faith want to go is church. I find that really breaks my heart because they believe in the one place where we believe in acceptance truly, they believe they'll be rejected. How sad is that? So if you are here this morning and it is your first time, no. Jesus accepts you as you are and wants a relationship with you. That is the beauty of the Christian faith. No matter what your history is or how unworthy you feel you are, believe me, if you are unworthy, I am more. And yet this God accepts us. Walk into his arms. The opposite of acceptance, um, of rejection, sorry, is acceptance, but also welcome. And there's something about the image of God opening up his arms and welcoming us into them for that hug, for that embrace. And maybe rejection is something that you have experienced this morning. Maybe even recently that's something that's been on your heart. And again, the same applies. Walk into his arms. Find your identity in him because the world will continue to chuck rubbish at us, right? Continue to try and define us by its standards, by the things that we hear our friends saying or that others say. But truly, our only identity can come from Jesus in which we are accepted in its entirety and he will change and transform our lives. Walk into his arms. I am going to read a passage. Um, as I was doing my quiet time this week, I was reading this um, passage from 2 Corinthians, and I, and I want to finish with these words. Because sometimes can it seem like even just that walk into Jesus' arms can be too difficult, can be a challenge. It even seems like so much just to walk into his arms. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 12, talks about uh, the Apostle Paul. He has this vision. He's got this thing that's going wrong in his ministry, and he wants God to take it away. But he realizes that even if God doesn't take it away, even if God doesn't heal that or sort it out, this is, is what he stands on. Verse 9 of the passage says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, you could say, in rejection, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We bring our rejection and the weakness that means into the arms of Jesus, and we find strength. Let's pray. Father, those words, walk into his arms, can seem so easy to say um, and, and great for me to stand up. But I know the reality of that um, is difficult and can be far harder. And I pray that rather than sounding like um, almost cheesy, I pray that rather than sounding like that, those words will have power um, this morning. To each and every person in this room, walk into your arms receive that embrace, know that acceptance, know that love, know that identity, and leave here knowing that they've met with you. Jesus, for your glory, because we are utterly undeserving, but so loved. Amen.